1921, I would say, and maybe even going back beyond that, been a tough year. Um, certainly has been for Rachel and I in a lot of different ways, particularly in the health area. Um, so we look back and we, wow, kind of glad to have it behind us. I uh, came up with a few words that might sort of describe the stress that uh, we have come under over these years, and I include all of us in these. Pandemic, lockdown, unemployment for some, churches closed, violence in the streets, overcrowded hospitals, uncertainty, a new word, wokeness, division, loss of freedoms. We, I would say that we learned in new ways what it meant to feel isolated, anxious, fragile, and even overwhelmed. And I expect one of the reasons that we come to church is that, you know, in, in the view of where we find ourselves now in our culture, in this world, not merely our culture, but in this world, we all need a word of hope, don't we? And I think that's one of the reasons that we come to church. Yes, we come to worship the Lord and hear the great gospel story, but we also really need a word of hope, don't we? And uh, especially in this time of uncertainty and with um, all of this still swirling around us, right? Well, I think a big part of my calling as a pastor, and we have different ways of looking at things as pastors, mine has always been to give us, give people a word of hope. The only hope that we can truly count on, the gospel hope, the hope that comes with Jesus and our great gospel story. So this morning, I want to bring a word, an encouraging word of hope, and it is this, very simply, kind of the big idea for the day. It's not one that you're not unfamiliar with, but one we probably all need to hear regularly, and it's this. In the end, Jesus wins. That is important for us to hold on to. When it's all said and done, when the last chapter of this present world closes and our age comes to an end, it is Jesus who ends up the victor. And because we are united to him by faith, really, we can say we too are victorious. Now, if that doesn't particularly grip you at this point, my guess is that in the weeks, perhaps even, you know, I had to say years to come, that might be a word you'll pull out from time to time. Yes, in the end, Jesus wins. Because when I look at 2022 and beyond, I got to say, is it going to get easier? Is it going to return? Is life going to return to normal? I don't really think so. I mean, here's a, here's a whole different list of challenging words that now, I think, are beginning to confront us. Words like, well, inflation. Supply chain disruptions. In some places in the world, food insecurity. How about war? You got Ukraine, you got China, those kinds of situations. The Great Reset. Huge strife in Washington, where you've got political Politically powerful people fighting against each other don't seem to be very interested in all of us, you know, wherever we are. And possible, possibly even some new strains of this virus. Well, then it's very valuable, I think, for us to remember this great truth that in the end, in the end, Jesus wins. 
So here's kind of where we're going this morning. You've got your little outline here. You can follow along here. Uh, one, what does it mean that Jesus wins? And two, to what does this truth then call us? What kind of life? How then shall we live if it's true? Well, to answer these questions, I want us to return to, uh, well, the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible, if you will. Um, it's been uh, kind of the focus of my personal study over the last couple of months. I, you know, I've been there before. I've preached here on, on certain passages in Revelation, but I kind of want to, I got a new, uh, uh, a new commentary and say, I'm going to go through uh, some of this again. I've enjoyed doing that, so it's been on my mind. And so the way that I understand this book is that it's not meant to be a detailed outline of the last days. Now, I grew up kind of in that particular camp. It is, of course, a prophecy. It's, a, it's an apocalyptic, it's a revelation. Something is being revealed. But it was first a letter from John to seven real churches. Churches, some of whom needed to hear a word of encouragement because they were in very different and difficult times. Worse than ours? I don't know. But it was tough for them. They needed a word of encouragement. And there were others needing a word of warning because, well, they were being tempted by the allurement of Rome to drift away from Christ. Alert away. Deceived. Any of that going on today? So John writes to them with a message to each of those churches. And you'll find it if you go to chapters 2 and 3. We'll look at it, but if you want to go back, uh, those are uh, the chapters there, there found, these short letters to each seven, the angel, uh, a letter to each of those churches in slightly different situations. Now those letters aren't so hard to decipher. They're just basically letters, and we can read them pretty easily, kind of understand what's going on. But then beginning with chapter 4 and going on to the end of Revelation, John uses a literary form that, well, was familiar to them, but is not all that familiar to us. And if you know something about Revelation, you know that it is difficult to decipher uh, these challenges. There was that category of writing called apocalyptic literature. I know it's a big name, but it has all this wild symbolism in it. Lamps, dragons, horsemen, scroll, giant battles, cities that come down from the sky, and so on. Now, it was familiar to them. We're used to that. But, but we have a little bit of sense of that. I mean, when you were, if you were to look at a political cartoon in the newspaper or on the Internet or something, you kind of get a sense of that. Okay, if you've got, on one side, you've got an elephant, and on the other side you've got a donkey and they're, you know, in battle against each other. You know, we know what that means. Republicans, Democrats, and so on. But a, but a person from a different culture would, well, what is all of this? Well, that's kind of what these symbols provide for us, a difficult challenge for sure. Now, what does all this have to do with us? Well, I want you to keep in mind that, well, John's revelation was written to those seven churches to those people back then revelation john's revelation was also written for us got that to them but also for us so we're invited to look at these chapters and say what does this say about 
our situation, you know, us in our situation. All right, so what does it mean then that in the end Jesus wins? Now for this, we would have to go back to the very last chapters of the Bible, chapters 21 and 22 uh, in Revelation. I invite you to take a look there if, if you like. But I want to say, first of all, between the letters of the churches on one side and then these last scenes which John writes about the trials and the persecutions of those that those Asian Christians were right in the middle of. Very in very symbolic ways, but he writes about those trials and difficulties. For some, their battles were against political forces that were attempting to get them to just fall in line and behave. Now the emperor, you know, he had his authority. He wanted to rule, and he was doing whatever he could to rule those people. But for others, like those in the Church of Laodicea, for example, their battle was to withstand the temptation to join in with the culture for a share of its profits and its powers. Profits and powers. They were being tempted. Huh, that happened in our day and age? You bet, it certainly is. Even for Christians. John's purpose in these chapters was to warn those Christians about the consequences of being on the wrong side. Then for their encouragement at the very end, John is then is given a wonderful vision of the outcome of it all, the outcome, the very end and goal of history. So what is the goal? The end of history. Where is it all going? Well, what we have in chapters 18 through 20 is the total and final destruction of all evil seen in the fall of Babylon. Now, that's one of those symbolic uh, uh, words. Uh, Babylon, the great city representing Rome and the worldly powers against God's kingdom. It also talks about the throwing of the dragon and the beast and the final the, the false prophet, which were all symbols of evil and death being thrown into the the, the uh, eternal lake of fire, and interestingly, Hades, hell, and as well, um, death are thrown in too. What an end, we would say. What an awesome end, but that's not all. The book comes to a close with a vision of the new and beautiful creation that Christ wins for us. It is the heavenly city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And of course, it's this that brings the age to an end and ushers in a glorious and eternal new age. This is where it all goes. So here's how John answers the question of what it means that in the end Jesus wins. First, in the end, evil and, devil and the devil do not win. They don't win. There ends up being only one who is Lord over all, our Lord Jesus Christ. All of that and those who stood against the church down through the ages would be disarmed and destroyed. And, well, powerful people have had their way all down through the ages, haven't they? We still experience that, certainly do. Men and, the women, and women, you know, in the hundreds of millions have suffered death at the hands of powerful people who just were there for themselves but death isn't the end. Eternity, God's eternity, that's what matters most and will be the end. 
It's all wonderfully summed up for us in uh, a verse that the angel gives John in chapter 17, quote, they will make war against the Lamb, Jesus, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Our great and loving God, he's the one who is Lord over all, all of eternity and all of history. But not only is evil defeated and destroyed, but our champion, Jesus, wins. I go back to fifth chapter of Revelation. John writes, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. There is a picture in the latter part of Revelation of a rider, a rider riding um, on a white horse who judges with justice and makes war and whose name is faithful and true. That conveys the truth that Jesus wins, but interestingly, not by powerful military means, not by a rout in a military sense, but through the victory of God's grace in the most unusual way through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Completely unexpected, <laughs> but how wonderful. All right, to what does this truth then call us? Well, the heavenly Jerusalem, I'm still on high, right? Hadn't come down yet. And we're in the midst of our struggle against the city of Babylon, that symbol of political, economic, and cultural forces that come against us. Well, that's where we're at in the whole story. Now, the center, there's a, center, there, a centermost activity in the book of Revelation, and it's the opening of a scroll. You might recall that if you've read through the book. Scroll plays a central part. Now, at the beginning of chapter 5, we find out that Jesus is the only one who can open this scroll. Everybody wishes they could, but they couldn't. Only Jesus is qualified to do so. Seals are then ripped, uh, stripped away one at a time until in chapter 10 and 11, the contents of the scroll, the message of the scroll is revealed. What is that message? Well, just let me summarize it. It's this. This is what the scroll says. What judgments have failed to achieve, you know, there are lots of judgments through those chapters, lots of judgments. What they have failed to achieve, that is the repentance of the world, God now achieves through the Lamb, through Jesus, through his life and resurrection. But the followers of the Lamb have a role in, a, have a, a role in achieving the repentance of the world. Yes, it's Jesus who provides the great um, uh, provision of salvation, but we have a role in the repentance of the nation, in the coming of the nations to salvation. We have a role. And what is it? It is to be witnesses to the Lamb. Now, in chapter 11, there, there is, you have the whole chapter that deals with two witnesses. I'm going to get into all of the symbolism, but essentially, these two witnesses give testimony to Jesus. 
And these two witnesses, they're called lampstands, and we can know from chapter 2 that the lampstands are the churches. So this chapter 11 has to do with the witness of the church. What we're told here is that our faithful witness is instrumental in God's great plan for the repentance and salvation of the nations. So our victory is not merely our own salvation. We like to think, wow, this is a great gift, and indeed it is. But victory is not only about us coming to Christ and experiencing all of his eternal blessings. To be saved from a world doomed to judgment. It's not just that. It's about the salvation, the coming of the nations to God. John's revelation teaches us. We're not here, teaches us this. We're not here for our own blessing. We are here, and think about it this way, even as a church. We are here to be a church for others not merely for ourselves. Easy to be all about ourselves, isn't it? I know what that's like. But we are to be a church for others. That's God's calling. That's the message, part of the great message of this, the opening of the scrolls. In every one of the seven letters of the churches, the angel calls its people to be overcomers. That's a powerful word, uh, word used seven times in those two chapters. Now, the rest of the letter tells us part of what it means to be an overcomer, and that means it is to be a witness. Now, the actual word martyr, actually, in the Greek, uh, it means someone who is a witness primarily. So what we're talking here about is a life of witness, which includes, of course, you know, a verbal witness, too. Peter writes us that we're always to be ready to make a defense to someone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. That's something we could always be working on, couldn't it? Now, the scriptures teach us that our spoken witness finds its credibility in our life of witness. We fulfill our purpose of witnessing to the nations by living out a life devoted to God and that does provide us opportunities to share the hope that Christ is in us. It is. That being a witness is a huge part of the message of Revelation. Now, what might that look like to get into application here a little bit? Let me ask a question. What is it that gets people to consider, to think about, what it means to be a Christian. What is it that gets them to ask questions about us and how we live our lives and to consider the greatness of this gospel story? What is it that gets people to do that? Well, more than our words, I would say, our lives, I would say. Our, Willington, our willingness to do the right thing, to be people of integrity in our everyday lives to do the right thing when called for. Now, people notice when you and I stand up for what is right and true. Really do notice that. I think of, of people that I've known who, um, one person uh, working in a, in a business, he was given the opportunity to, uh, for a promotion, and he decided against it. You know why? Because he knew that if he got up on that level, in that particular position, that he was going to have to fix the books, 
do things unethically. That was just a part of what it was expected if you got to that height in the business. And so he said, no, I'm not going to do it. And people, they noticed. They noticed, indeed they did. That's one way. Why would he do that? Look at the money and the power that he gives up. Now that can go in an opposite direction too, uh, certainly, can't it? How many of us? I suppose every single one of us have been in positions where someone who who has called themselves a Christian, and maybe is a Christian, has been unethical with us or lied to us. And what's that done to us? What does that do to our credibility, our reputation as Christians, the things of Christ? Witness can mean, up, can, can mean our standing up for someone who is being mistreated. It might be choosing the difficult and unpopular road of going against the prevailing culture in order to honor the Lord. I appreciate it in the leadership here at First Baptist. You know, when we were you know, here almost two years ago, and when the first uh, wave of the coronavirus came around and we were wondering you know, how serious this is going to be, difficult, you know, uh, and, and so on. The church, you know, our church, your church, was one of the very first to say, we're, you know, we're going to open up. We're going to keep open. We're going to add because we know how important it is to gather together for worship. I'm not going to give in to this. We're going to trust Christ. I'm sure that was noticed in the community. I imagine it was. Many churches said, no, no, we're not going to touch this. We're going to do what society says and what everybody else says. I appreciate your willingness to go ahead on that. To witness could mean to choose the difficult and unpopular road of going against the prevailing culture in order to honor the Lord. I think, I think you young people in high school particularly, man, that's really hard, isn't it? <laughs> it's really difficult to do that because the power, you know, the pressure of your peers and all that, everybody, we all want to be liked, I know. But I want you to know, that doesn't have to be done in kind of a snobbish way or an unpopular way where, you know, I'm just better than you all. I want you to know that. No, you can just seek to do the right thing. John and Revelation would tell us that such things matter to Christ and are part of how we are to live in the here and now. Okay. Witness. We live lives of witness also when we love others around us. Now, who are those around us? (coughs) The Bible describes them in lots of different ways. Sheep without a shepherd, blinded by the God of this world, poor, blind, pitiable, and naked. I mean, describes all of us. We're all like that in we really are, aren't we? Well, that's because of our sin and our bad decisions and all of that. But we can live lives of witness as we love other people who are fellow strugglers too. I heard about a young guy who graduated from high school, went on to college, he did really well in college, and he got to actually give the commencement speech to his other students very interesting when he talked about that day. He talked about an incident that happened several years ago, back when he was in high school. 
early part of high school. And he was one of these really unpopular kids that nobody, you know, everybody ignored and, and, and people made fun of. And one day he was going home, he was on the way home to take his own life. It's gotten so bad, so difficult for him, he says, I can't take this anymore. But on the way home, another young guy that at least he, he knew from high school came up to him and started talking with him and got in, engaged him in conversation and they realized there were several things in common and they, they enjoyed each other. And he became a good friend. And it was in this speech that he said, that young man who came into my life at that particular point was what made a difference in my life from that point on. He saved my life. I don't know if that, that guy who, was, uh, who had come alongside that young, uh, very unpopular guy at the time, uh, you know, was a Christian or not, but he certainly was acting like it. We have people all around us that are looking for affirmation, looking to be acknowledged, looking to be loved. I think that's a really po powerful way that we can allow our lives to make a difference in someone else's life. To show genuine interest in others, that sets you apart and makes you attractive to inquiring people who want to know why. I got to say this, don't we all need prayer? Don't we all need the encouragement of other people? Don't we all need the Holy Spirit's work in our lives? Don't we all need a daily, you know, exposure to the to the gospel and to the scriptures in order that we might be those kinds of people? Don't we all need that? Yes, we do. We'll all need hope to cope with the challenges before us. I don't know what 22 and 23 are going to be like, but when I see stuff on the horizon, I think it's going to be difficult. The church has gone through difficult times through the years. So throughout all of our history, we can do this because of the grace of God. But we need that hope, don't we? And the best and the truest and most inspiring hope of all is this, that Jesus lives and in the end... In the end, Jesus wins. And with us being united with him, well, we win too. We do. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the encouragement of the apostles, that apostolic group who wrote these scriptures, who were changed by your Holy Spirit and given us access to them. Here we have it in our own language. We have books, all kinds of books, Bibles and books on it, and all kinds of opportunities. Thank you for the great news that it provides us. And in these days, we, we need hope for the future. And we thank you that it's always found in Jesus, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, who came into this world on our behalf. Thank you that, the, that the, though the challenges are great before us, that we have great opportunities to be what you've called us to be, overcomers who witness to your greatness and goodness and the, the, the truth that you have the answer to life. Help us in that in these great age, days to come. And we'll thank you that you delight to do that. 
And we delight in you now in Jesus' name.